You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. I can't go back. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Good evening. Hello. Welcome to She Became Visible. I am Renee Steelman, your host. And tonight we're going to have just a chat. We're just going to talk about some things that have been happening in the news. I'm going to give you a preview of coming attractions for my podcast next week. And we're just going to kind of talk about things that are going on in life. So I hope you'll join me. I would love it if you've made and let me see if I can. uh, Let me see if I can find something. Yeah, I would love it if you um, wanted to make a comment or something like that. I would love that. I would love your participation. Um, I wanted to start out tonight's broadcast by being a little bit vulnerable and telling you a little bit about where I'm at. And this coincides with our topic for tonight, I believe, because as a cisgendered woman, Uh, a former member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a baby boomer, I participated in the church at a time that there was a lot of doctrine and policy that came down, that there was not a progressive or nuanced theme behind. It was very black and white. It was very specific. And we, as Latter-day Saint women, We're definitely told who we were, why we were here, and what our purpose was. And there was no space for individual inspiration or individual thought. We were told how we should think. And the quote that's often given, and I don't remember who it's referenced or who who said it, was when the prophet speaks, the thinking stops. And that is definitely how I grew up. And so with that information, it is very, uh, it's a difficult path when you're deconstructing um, to witness the the nuanced and the personal revelation that's being accepted in this day and age. So the reason I bring that up is because, as I mentioned, I, I want to share a little bit with you and kind of share a little bit of my vulnerable side. So let me start out by showing, uh, sharing this little video with you this day thank you for the light coming through that window thank you thank you that i'm breathing thank you thank you for everything thank you for the phone call that told me that i have the job thank you even for the phone call that told me i'm not wanted anymore thank you because i know you have something better for me so that's a little video that i made about a year ago and the reason i made it is because our youngest son Um, this is a picture of him when he was a baby. Is that not the cutest thing you've ever seen? And he he looks younger than he was. This is his, a picture that was taken when he was in kindergarten. So he was about five. He was always, um, small because he had severe cerebral palsy. And, um, one of the side effects of a spastic form of cerebral palsy is that they burn a lot of calories. Um, their muscles are in a, a constant state of a spasm and contraction. And so they burn a lot of calories. This is a more recent picture of him that was taken as an adult, very handsome young man, very severely disabled. Um, he even, uh, not only was he physically disabled, all of his uh, uh, limbs were, uh, he had no use of his hands or his legs, but also he was what they called cortically blind, which meant that his eyes themselves were functioning, but the uh, optic nerve that goes back to the um, 
uh, I don't remember what part, but it um, it didn't function. So he could he we're really not sure where his vision was. We knew as he got older that he could see something, whether it was light, shadows or whatnot, because as we would you know, go to feed him or I would go to wash his face, he would kind of you know blink like that. His hearing was very good. And um, he so he relied on his hearing and he knew the tone of people's voices. He knew who was speaking and he knew the tone of your voice. So he did not put up with anger or sadness or frustration. He could hear it in your voice and he would react physically to it. So the reason I bring this up is because this, um, as I mentioned, this was our youngest son and he actually died on Christmas morning last year. And so we just... um, spent Thanksgiving with our children. And last year, one of the pictures that I have in that video is all six of our children together. Now he, we knew he was sick and he was struggling with some things, but um, he was a fighter and he always seemed to have complications after a surgery, even after something as simple as a dental procedure, he would have a complication, but he always won. He was a fighter. And so he, um, even though he was going through some sickness, we expected him to pull through. So the last picture that we have taken of him was on Christmas Eve. We took him to a evangelical Christmas Eve program where we knew that there would be lots of choir voices, which he loved. He loved music. And we went to that. We could tell he wasn't feeling well um, because he didn't react to the music. And the next morning after struggling uh, with some things, he passed away. The reason I bring that up is because we're going to talk today about a recent article in the Salt Lake Tribune. And this article hit me because it emphasizes so broadly the idea of what a woman's role is in this, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I want to read you a little poem that I wrote Um, I had attended the Restore Conference, and I put this in one of my videos a couple of weeks ago. And for some reason, I woke up about three o'clock in the morning after attending the um, Restore Conference, and I just, I had these words, and I just wanted to put them down on paper. And this is what I said. At 17, I opened the letter. You've been accepted, the university committee decided. I excitedly ran to share the news with my parents and rhetorically asked, You'll help me begin my path to further knowledge and adult dreams, right? They said, we've done enough. At 18, I sat in a chair, alone, frightened, in my uniformed young body that was bringing me pain. The man in a more official uniform sat behind his desk. He was verbally addressed as doctor. His rank in the U.S. Navy had not authorized him to be called commander. Yet my dream of being a mother was under his authority. On that day, he instructed me that one ovary will be removed. At 32, another man with DR in front of his surname, not so impressively clad, young, barely through with residency, asked me, where is your husband? I indignantly replied, I'm enough. What are the results of the tests? He hesitantly explained that my new baby did not receive enough oxygen during his complicated birth. The result is severe brain damage. We don't know what this means for his quality of life, but we have done enough. Good luck. At 66, I pushed zero to speak to a representative. The answering desk nurse told me that due to a worldwide viral pandemic, my son could not be seen in office for his post-surgical follow-up. But I don't think you heard me, I authoritatively replied. The wound isn't healing. The metal disc you place in his abdomen is emerging along with fluid, soaking gauze pads by the hour. We've done enough, she said with her semi-god blasé tone. Call us back in a week. At 67, I had filled my hope chest with all the enoughs it could hold. I sat on the lid to pressure the locks to close. I brushed off my dreams from the past five decades like residue with my witch-like hands swollen joints and bulging veins. I asked my children, do you need anything? No, mom, you've done enough. I asked my partner, did we do enough? He replied, 
I was told to give my time and talents to others more than my family. My family would be blessed with enough because I was absent. We gave enough. Then I asked the corporation, did I do enough? They said, give us thrice more. Leave your grandchildren and golden years. Give us your third act too. A man with the title prophet had assigned my woman duty and journey. He declared, you haven't given enough. At 68, I picked up my 37-year-old son and screamed, no, you can't die. I haven't had enough kisses that you blow every night. I haven't bathed you and cared for you enough. He took one last breath in my arms. His nonverbal, lifeless body telepathically told me, I have had enough of this life. He had suffered in a bent, spastic body, blind and dumb. Men with authority said his perfection was earned in a pre-existence. That wasn't enough, however. He needed one more check mark to earn his place in heaven. He was so perfect, they said, that God gave him a deformed, useless shell he could call his body. He lived in pain, but that body was enough. As the paramedics wheeled his palsy shell away, his beautiful face shrouded with a white sheet, I knew he had given more than enough. I mailed a notarized letter to the corporation stating, I no longer wish to be told by them when I had been enough. A deity in heaven, I call her divine mother, had been whispering for decades to stop. Shh, she whispered in my ears, it's enough. But I swatted her sound away like a buzzing fly. I was told not to listen to a female comforting voice. She wasn't enough. Now I'm almost 70. I can't get enough of the joy and anticipation I feel each day. I asked my divine feminine, what shall we do today with my soul set free from chattel like indoctrination? May I explore and learn? May I run or sit still? May I spend the day in service to others or is today a self-care day? Whatever I decide, when Venus appears in the night sky, my divine feminine, whom I call Heavenly Mother, now shouts, well, that was a fine day. It was enough. The reason I share this with you is because the article in the Salt Lake Tribune was so demeaning. And it meant more to me at this time of year when we're talking about Thanksgiving and we're talking about the role of women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I find hilarious that they even have the gall to call themselves a church of Jesus Christ, that they would do what they did. So let me bring this to your attention. So the Salt Lake Tribune, and I have it here on a slide if I can find it. Let me find it here. All right. A slap in the face, LDS Relief Society letters, leaders ordered off the stand. So what they're basically saying here, I didn't make a copy of that one. Okay, so basically uh, what happened was an Area 70 had, um, and it was very interesting because uh, I was listening to RFM last night and he uh, was so wise to have um, Carolyn Pearson on who actually lives in the area. And and then he had a couple of other my friends on and, he, and they asked him, um, they said, uh, was he there? I mean, what was he in town for? Was he was he attending the stake for some reason? This area president, I think, I think RFM said it was his name was um, uh, Bragg, and they said no, I don't think he was there. So somehow word had gotten back to him that women in this particular stake in the San Francisco area were sitting on the stand as people of authority, women with power. They had been doing this for like nine or 10 years. And when the area president found out about this, he put a stop and he said, absolutely not. Women do not belong on the stand. And so let me just read you some of the comments. Um, let me pick one here. The women who are upset about, the, these are just little clips from the article in the Salt Lake Tribune. The women who are upset about the move are all faithful Orthodox women, not rebels or activists, say, says McNeil, who gave a stack of letters from women to an area authority. It feels like we are being punished for something we didn't do wrong. The feelings run the gamut from anger to sadness, and they are profound and deep. 
Not only was the Relief Society representation on the stand impactful for women, but there was also a very practical benefit of seeing the congregation from a bird's eye view, writes Melanie Williams of the Los Altos Stake. It could help it helped the bishopric immensely as she could identify members' needs the men might miss. Oh, might miss. Uh, here's another clip. And I don't remember who they're quoting here. But she says she has never felt more less than in all my church life. It was such a small crumb. Why did the church take away that crumb? Whom did that threaten? Jesus was born to a woman, announced his ministry to a woman, and first appeared to a woman after he was resurrected. William says, he would not have objected to their presence on the stand. Another clip. Apparently though, even that small symbol was too much for some of the males, the faith's male leaders. Last month, the practice was abruptly discontinued at the order of the North American West area president whose jurisdiction includes California, according to church spokesperson, Doug Anderson. It seems like such a simple act of inclusion, having female Relief Society leaders sitting on the stand facing the pews during Latter-day Saint Sunday services has been a non-controversial tradition among some congregations in the San Francisco Bay Area for a decade or more. But to many women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the public presence of women sitting side by side with male eclastic, I know this word, um, uh, authorities sent a powerful signal. They were an important and essential part of the community's leadership. And then again, it was a slap in the face, says Laurel McNeil, a Relief Society president in Sunnyvale. We are good enough for all this service, but not good enough to sit up there with men and present a united front. So those are just some of the clips that came from that article. Now, the reason it upset me so much was, of course, the timing, as I mentioned, because when my son was um, born, my husband was serving in the uh, high council. And there was absolutely, and I know I've mentioned this before on some of my other podcasts, but there was absolutely no mention of him being released, even though we had five other children at home. My oldest child was nine. And my this and he was our sixth child and he had a difficult birth. He was immediately rushed to Oregon Health Science University. He was in the hospital for over a month and before we brought him home. And when we brought him home, he was on oxygen. He was having a hard time eating. It was a very difficult time in our life. But my husband served in his position in the high council very faithfully. We never had a visit from anyone in the high council, stake presidency, bishopric, Relief Society presidency. There was absolutely no visitation from people who thought that this might've been a time when my husband uh, should have been released to maybe help out with the family. So this was all culminating with our, our experience as a, as a woman. I was also a in the young women at this time. I was a Laurel advisor. So I had a calling all through this pregnancy and afterwards. So I had young women coming over to my house um, while I had this baby that would cried all the time because he was so hungry and never even occurred to anyone that anyone should be released from this calling. So the other thing that, that really upset me about this was the fact that there have been so many men who have really, um, they have done some really stupid things and absolutely nothing happened to them. And I'm going to bring this up as um, two different examples. Uh, let me go back to my slides because I want to go back to, yep, there we are. That's who we're going to talk about. Let's talk about this guy. Okay. So I want to, I want to share something with you that I recently found on YouTube. This is Brad Wilcox who gave a little talk a few years ago and um, he ended up having to apologize for what he said. It was absolutely insane, the words that came out of his mouth. No one asked him to leave the stand. He put on a fake apology, but there was absolutely zero action taken against what had happened to him. And let me see if I can find that, um, 
if I can learn how to do this correctly. Please tell me I'm knowing how to do this correctly. All right, let's watch this together. Brad Wilcox is remorseful for his hurtful comments from his previous talk. He apologized for making similar comments during several other talks in the past. Now, it wasn't the first time that I'd given that talk, and it wasn't the first time I've used the ideas I shared or the line of reasoning. Wilcox addressed the criticized comments during his fireside with Canadian youth on Sunday night. In his controversial talk, 62-year-old Wilcox compared Black people receiving the priesthood in 1978 to white people and other races waiting for the restoration of the priesthood. In the past, I failed to see how my comments could be seen as insensitive and hurtful. Wilcox says that his friends are helping him to understand the impact of his comments and that he's grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ. Wilcox also apologized on social media last week after the fireside for what he said. Okay, so he apologized. He didn't have any idea that the things that he said could have been offensive. So let me tell you. Let Hello, me tell everyone, you. and welcome oh. to another edition oh. of Mormon Stories Podcast. No, no, I'm your host, Dr. John DeLynn. It is February 7th. Oh, we don't need that on there. Ah, go away. Okay, that was funny. Um, so I came upon this little ditty on YouTube. Let me share this with you. The world that's just starving for love. Bradley Ray Wilcox. Very brief bio here. First counselor in the young man. General presidency. Of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Associate professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young I University. I think we better go back to the original topic. Mother Teresa would often say there's an epidemic of needing love and not being able to find that. What do you do with a kid that's wetting himself in sixth grade because he's so terrified that his father might come back into his life. <laughs> I've never seen a curriculum guide that tells you how to handle that one. We don't focus enough on the other needs, the need for validation, for acceptance. I think real teachers are the ones who see needs and then are able to meet those needs. Okay. I can't listen to it anymore. The irony of this is the fact that he is on a podcast with Stephen Jones, who is an African-American man. Let me share this a little bit. Now, this is this is after this appalling talk that he gave to a youth conference. Let me let me share this little ditty with you. And I'm going to try not to heave here while while I'm watching. One of the biggest misconceptions. I think they're missing. You say, let's get real. I just don't quite know how to do anything else but be real. I don't have any memories before Ethiopia. Really? Uh, so we were over there in the mid 60s and my earliest childhood memories are all of Africa. And so actually uh, I had quite a transition moving from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh. back to the United States. Uh, my mom says, I don't remember this, but I came home, I was baptized here. So I, I must've gotten home when I was, just before I turned eight. Okay. And um, my mom says that I came home from school and was crying. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, mom, everybody's white. <laughs> Again, is this not the most planned, staged event that you've ever seen in your life? I mean, he doesn't have any memories before his time in Ethiopia. And when they came back, he came home from school and he was crying. He said, mom, everybody's white. I just don't know how to, how to get by with this. I mean, it is, he might as well have said, exactly, thank you, RFM. He might as well have said, I have black friends. I'm not a racist. What are you talking about? Some of my best friends are black. Some of my best friends are gay. I mean, this is the stereotypical stupid white male comment, right? It was so staged. It, I, it, I just had to barf. But when I showed you in the beginning, was he released from his calling? No, he was forced to give an apology and he pretended like he had no idea that what he was saying was offensive. Did any of these women 
All they did was sit on a stand. They sat up in front. And that was an absolute no, that was not going to happen. Now, what I find also fascinating is that Brad Wilcox was required to apologize. Now, it's my understanding that we don't apologize if we have our word general authorities. Now, I know he's in the young men's presidency, so maybe that's not considered a general authority. But still, Brad had to apologize. Hmm. Is there any other general authority that ever had to apologize? I think there might be. Let me share this little ditty with you. Kimball, who doesn't like controversy, sort of a mild-mattered man. Um, uh, let me give you a sense of his personality for a quick moment. Um, he, he's, uh, his brother-in-law is the scientist Henry Eyring, who possibly would have won a Okay, let me just, before I let Matt continue, let me just give you a brief introduction. Matt is going to be my guest next week on She Became Visible. His knowledge and retention of, of his history is absolutely amazing. And, um, and what I have learned more from him by watching uh, some of his podcasts is the connection. I grew up in Illinois. I grew up, my family was a convert. I did not grow up in the bubble. And so all of these names meant nothing to me. In fact, President Oaks, Dallin Oaks was our state president. And my father was his executive secretary. My young women's camp, uh, camp counselor was Sister Sorensen. And her counselor was... Uh, I cannot remember. It begins with an R. Uh, okay, RFM, you're not, you're going to know. It. Anyway, it's one another one of those names, right? But I didn't know that. I didn't know that Sorensen and, and all of these other names that, that they meant anything, right? And okay, here's another connection that I, the missionaries that converted my family, uh, they were sister missionaries. And one of the sister missionaries, her middle name was Fielding. Her last name was Smith. So when my parents went out to Utah so that we could all be sealed in the temple, we drove from Chicago to Salt Lake. That was the closest temple to be sealed together as a family. And Sister Smith was able to take us to the uh, church building and introduce us to Delbert Stapley. And um, I can't remember who else. So but again, I was 12. OK, I didn't know who these people were and it meant nothing to me. So listening to Matt, to Dr. Harris He's bringing in these connections. So when he's talking about President Kimball being a Henry Eyring was his brother-in-law, and then he talks about, and we're going to talk about this a little bit longer. We're, we're going to we're going to bring this into it. Um, he's talking about Benson, and he's talking about when Benson was in the, as Secretary of Agriculture, and he knew, um, oh, what's his face, crud. Um, anyway, the guy that came out was the um, president of BYU. And then he knew Ivan's. And then he, and Ivan's like, oh, wait, I've heard of Ivan's. Isn't that in St. George, Utah? And I mean, there's just all these connections. Absolutely astounding. So, um, okay, somebody is asking me, what is the name of the book on ETB? Oh, Ezra Taft Benson and the Making of the Mormon Rite. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but anyway, so he's talking about and we're going to get into this next week. So tune in next week. But he's talking about Ezra Taft Benson and how many times this man had to apologize. The prophets, David O. McKay, Spencer W. Kimball, um, Hubie Brown, all these men would be like, somebody needs to, he needs to apologize you know, he would go and he gave his famous talk and conference and people were writing letters and they're like, how dare he? We went to a state conference and President Benson, all he talked about was politics and communism and we don't want to hear from him. And they were like, um, you need to apologize. And I'm like, when did Dallin Oaks start this? We don't need to apologize thing. So let Matt continue here. Nobel Peace Prize, um, had he not gone to the University of Utah, that's what at least Sterling McMurrin speculates. Had he stayed at Princeton, maybe he would have won this big award. And McMurrin speculates that it's because the, the committee was racist toward, or prejudiced towards Mormons. I don't know if that's true, but he does have incredible stature. And uh, Spencer Kimball uh, and Iring talk a lot at family gatherings about various church issues. And also his brother-in-law, George Boyd, 
um, who was a Mormon intellectual, taught in the church's education system. I know that may sound like an oxymoron today, but in those days, there truly were some intellectuals in the church education system. I love that. That might seem like an oxymoron, but there actually were intellectuals at one time. Not maybe Brad Wilcox, not maybe somebody who is supposed to be teaching ancient scripture and is like, that wasn't even his qualification, but maybe in the past, they actually had intellectuals there. George Boyd, um, who had a doctorate degree in religious philosophy, and then, um, so he's the brother-in-law to Spencer Kimball, and then he would talk to Henry Eyring, I guess his cousin, to think about this. Someone's going to correct me, I'm sure, the genealogy here. I think it's uh, Eyring's, uh, Kimball's cousin. But anyway, at family gatherings, the three men would be together talking, Eyring, Boyd, and Kimball, and uh, they would talk about spiritual things just fine, no, no problem. But when it turned to evolution or any kind of secular matter, and Boyd and Eyring would get into these vigorous debates and arguments, Kimball would just leave. He just couldn't handle, didn't want to engage, just didn't like the conflict. Not that, you know, a, a debate is conflict, but that's how he perceived it. He, and that's what Boyd said. Boyd writes about this. He just didn't want to be around our, our debates, didn't want to be around it. So he would walk away at these family gatherings. And um, so when, when these letters come in to protest um, President uh, Benson or Elder Benson, this, this happens after Kimball had called him in several times in his office to reprove him about things he was saying about politics. So this is sort of the climax of several years of just tension between the church president and the most senior apostle, Benson. And so Spencer Kimball called Benson in and he said, this is in the spring of 1980. And he said, you need to apologize. You've embarrassed the church. You need to apologize to the Quorum of the Twelve um, at our Thursday meeting. You need to apologize. And Benson is just, <laughs> this isn't a good moment. And so he goes to the meeting. This is in the Salt Lake Temple. And he apologizes to the Quorum of the Twelve. And, and apologize for what? Make that really clear. What's he apologizing for? For injecting politics into the church discourse when he's been warned repeatedly not to. It's causing bad publicity for the church and it's harming the church. And the church, the brethren don't like controversy. They don't like bad publicity. And so, and Benson's been doing this for a number of years now. Um, Cause remember Lee and Smith had reined him in, but he resumed all of this stuff with Kimball because he thought he knew Kimball well. And I'm going to be just cynical for a quick moment, but he thought he could take advantage of Kimball. Really? He thought he did. They were in the quorum together in 1943. They were called the same uh, time together. They had served for decades together, and he thought he could take advantage of them. And President Kimball, boy, had a little more fire in his belly than Benson had predicted. So anyway, Benson had been talking to him nicely in private. Stop! And he wouldn't. And then he gives this controversial address in 1980, and, and again, it's controversial because he's injecting politics again into the church body, and he's laying the groundwork for his own church presidency. That's what... That is the most absolutely fantastic part of this whole thing was that President Benson, and I love Matt's, it, it wasn't so much that he had this strong feeling against communism. It, that's part of it. That's true. But he was laying the groundwork for, he knew he was going to be the next president of the church, that he was going to be the next prophet. So when he gave his 14 fundamental truths, when he gave that talk at BYU, the things that he said there, it was not revelation. It was not, yes, the 14 fundamentals. When he gave that talk, he gave that because he was laying the groundwork. We're not going to listen to dead prophets. We're only going to listen to the current prophets. It's okay that we talk about politics as well as religion. He's going to bring his theocracy into it. And he, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so did Spencer Kimball. They all knew what he was doing. What happened to him? That's my point. Next week, we're going to go into, Matt and I are going to talk more about Elder Benson. But I have to tell you, when um, I listened to a podcast the other day, and I was listening to Kate Kelly, and she was referencing the, the reason why women leave the church, in her opinion. She was saying that a lot of times men will get something like a, a historical truth, the book of Abraham or 
something that happened in 1830 or some historical truth that they go like, I think probably maybe even the CES letter might be more, um, uh, it might hit men a little harder for women. Usually she said it was something about the patriarchy and polygamy. And that is exactly what my story was. If someone was to say to me, what exactly took you out of the church? Um, it was the doc, the David O. McKay biography written by Greg Prince. And when he got to the relationship with David O. McKay and Ezra Taft Benson, and I read what so many people tried to do to get him to shut up, change his rhetoric and stop talking about communism and the Birch Society. And he refused to do it, but he was stayed in his position. He became a prophet, seer and revelator, a president of the church. And, and the fact that he was allowed to do that is what took me out because I then realized, oh, these are not men called of God. These are, this is the corporation of a fraternity of, I know this guy and I know this guy and I worked with this guy and let's bring this guy in. And Matt covers that a lot when he talks about different positions, even the way that Benson got his position as secretary of agriculture was, I knew this guy who knew this guy who knew this guy. And now I know that that's reality. That is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I know that that is how the world works. And that's right. That is how the world works. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, this, this isn't a church. This is a corporation and it's run by men. Now, the other thing was, um, and, and it's not, it's not unique nowadays. I want to share this other clip with you because it's not necessarily unique to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think, especially at this time, it's very, um, it's what's happening in the world. Let me share this clip with you. But Tim Alberta sought a career in journalism writing about politics. His father urged him to stay grounded, including in a 2019 chat he'll never forget. He keeps saying to me, don't spend your whole career around these people. There are so many other stories. And that was one of the last conversations we had. Days later, Tim's dad suddenly died. When I come home to my church, I'm expecting, I guess, um, something different from what I got. While some offered consolation, Alberta also got confrontation from some conservative church members objecting to his reporting on then-President Donald Trump. A lot of folks right there at the viewing just, they wanted to argue about politics. They, you know, they wanted to know if I was still a Christian and my dad's in a box like 100 feet away. The church wasn't a sanctuary from politics. Politics was now part of the church. That's right. I knew that to some degree. And in fact, I willfully ignored it. Alberta's reckoning with faith and politics is the basis for his new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, which documents what he calls an age of extreme. And that's it's, it's ironic because that's exactly what was happening with President Benson. Now, I also have to give you a little bit of um, back knowledge as well. Um, my, I grew up, like I said, just south of Chicago in the Midwest, and I'm a baby boomer. So my parents were World War II depression people. And communism was a huge thing after the war, after World War II. My, both of my aunts, my mom had, um, there were five girls in her family and three boys. So there were eight children in her family and they all served in the military. And one of them, there was one that passed away. He didn't actually, um, he served in um, Japan. He was a pilot and he served in Japan, but he actually died in Florida doing some training, some pilot training. Um, but my, both of my aunts served in the US Navy and I, my uncle served in the army. And so they were very, very uh, patriotic. And my grandmother became the civil defense director for Grundy County, 
where she lived. So this whole idea of communism was very much a part of my life. So I understand where Ezra Taft Benson was coming from. Also being raised as a baby boomer, we lived with the air raids and going underneath your desk. You know, these kids nowadays are doing school shootings. We were doing, you know, communists bombing us, taking over the country. So, I mean, that's what we grew up with. So I have empathy and sympathy for where uh, Ezra Taft Benson was coming from because I lived with that. My grandmother had a picture of Dwight Eisenhower on her wall. I have to tell you a funny story. As a youth, I stayed overnight with my bit. And I remember she she had a pullout bed and I was laying in this little like little corner room that had a pullout bed. And right behind me was the window. And I loved it because you could see, you could see this uh, street lights. She lived right on Main Street in a little small town called Morris, Illinois. And I could hear the traffic. And right in front of me was the opening that from this little room into their little, they just had a little two bedroom apartment. That's what my grandparents lived in. And, but right on the wall, uh, on the right side of the opening was a picture of Dwight Eisenhower. Well, somehow in my little brain, I thought it was a picture of Khrushchev. And I was so scared. I didn't know. I thought, what has happened? What has my grandmother done? Well, they were bald. That's all as far as I got. But regardless, what I'm saying is that I, this idea of communism, I understand it. Now, also, my parents were converts of the church. They joined the church in 1962. And I remember my mother also getting involved in the Birch Society. And she's been a right wing crazy from that point on. So um, she's right there with, uh, and I'm going to share my political feeling here. She's a Trumper and she didn't believe that Obama had a birth certificate and the whole bit. So she's been on the Birch train from the very beginning. And it was just part of where she came from a lot of part of, part of her culture, but Anyway, so this is where I, this is how I grew up. Now, the point is, Ezra Taft Benson, he was kept in his position. He was still given authority. The, the average member of the church did not know any of these things that were going on. We did not know that he was being called in by the prophets, Joseph Fielding Smith, Spencer Kimball, Hubie Brown was complaining. We didn't know any of that. All we saw was a man that we were told had authority from God and that we believe that the words that were coming out of his mouth at general conference were words inspired by Jesus. And so the members, now not all members, because there were plenty of letters that were being written, but members that went in that direction, like my mother, they thought these were words from God. And so, and so now I'm going to talk. So this was all going on in the 60s and 70s. They sent him to Germany, tried to get rid of him. It still didn't shut him up. In fact, they, according to Dr. Harris, he actually got more rat, uh, radical while he was serving in Germany. But this is where it affected me. And this is going to completely do this circle back to where I started out. In 1987, Ezra Taft Benson gave a talk called To the Mothers in Zion. And in this talk, one of the things that he said was, a mother's role is God ordained. In the eternal family, God established that fathers are to preside in the home. Fathers are to provide, to love, to teach, and to direct. But a mother's role is also God ordained. Mothers are to conceive, to bear, to nourish, to love, and to train. So declare the revelations. Okay, RFM, find me those revelations. Show me the revelations that say my entire existence is to conceive, to bear, and to nurture. But these are the words that came across. Now, the next paragraph says, husband and wives are co-creators. With this divine injunction, husbands and wives as co-creators should eagerly and prayfully invite children into their homes. Then as each child joins their family circle, they can gratefully exclaim, as did Hannah, for this child I prayed and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful, he says, a mother praying to bear a child and then giving him to the Lord. Now I have two stories to tell about that. That is what I was taught. My son was born in 1985. Even though he was our sixth child, 
was born with severe physical disabilities. I still thought that I should be procreating. Now, I had I was inspired and I truly use that word. I really do believe that I was inspired as I was pregnant with him before I even knew because I had a loser for a doctor. I did not know that this child forming in my womb had a diaphragmatic hernia. He only had a 20% chance of survival when he was born. If my doctor would have been an OBGYN instead of a family practitioner, he might've done an ultrasound, which would have shown him that my son had a diaphragmatic hernia and that his lungs weren't developing and that he was going to have a very slim chance of survival. But we did not know that until after he was born. But something in my gut told me that this would be our last child. My oldest child was nine. This was my sixth child. And I knew I could not do anymore. And I love children. My plans were to have eight, maybe even 12 children, because I'm one of those people that when when you tell me to do something, I'm going to do it even more. I have vitamins sitting on my bedside table. They said, take four a day. I take four in the morning and four at night. Okay. Typical American, right? We always have to overdo it, right? Walk 10,000 steps, maybe 11. Maybe we should do 11. Okay. So when I knelt at the altar and I was told to procreate, to, to replenish the earth, I took that as a calling. And that is what my plans were. But somehow innately, I knew that this would be my last child. So I chose to make it a permanent. And because my son was born emergency cesarean, they were able to do the sterilization without having to have another surgery scheduled. So this was my last child. But in 1985, and our family will probably remember, any of you people that are my age, um, hey, stop applauding RFM. Pay attention to this podcast. <laughs> like great podcast last night rfm come back here anyway so but if you were if you are in my age group you'll remember that in in the mid 1980s there was a huge push to um adopt romanian children there was this huge romanian orphanage thing going on and people were adopting children from romania so here i was with a baby on my hip connected to oxygen tanks he's got all kinds of of issues. My oldest child is nine. He's got ADHD, right? I'm getting calls from the school telling me what he's doing. You know, I'm having to call my husband and say, you got to go pick up our oldest child from the school. He's beating people up on the playground because I can't get out of the house. I've got, you know, five other ones left at home. And so he, um, <laughs> there you go, RFM. Thanks. He's on my side now. So anyway, so this is where I'm at, right? And I'm listening to all this adopt kids from, and I'm thinking we should adopt a child from Romania. I mean, I can't bear any more children, but we should be bringing more children into our home because that's my job, right? So maybe we should be adopting children from Romania. I mean, oh my gosh, thank heavens there was somebody, you know, that my husband is like, yeah, we're not adopting children from Romania. <laughs> okay, that's not happening. And then when I had grandchildren, and we, I would bring the grandchildren into the home and they would start crying. And that would make my youngest son cry because he did not like crying. And then I was, so I would have two babies crying and I'm like, who, who do I take care of? I was going crazy. All right. But I took the words from a prophet. I took it to heart. And there are so many other women that did the same. It did not matter if you had an inkling that you wanted to be a professional in some area. That was not your job. You were told no. Ezra Teth Benson is the one, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's the one that told everyone to come home from their typewriters, come home from the offices. You need to come home. That's the counsel that we were given. Now, these women were sitting on the stand. That's all they did. They were sitting on the stand. And an area authority said, absolutely not. We are not having that. Get back down there with your children. And if you don't have any more children, find somebody else's children to sit with because that is your job. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, last week, not last week, that was Thanksgiving week, but the week before my last podcast, I had an apologist on who, and, and, and John mentioned this, 
and I think RFM mentioned this too, I had attended the Restore Conference and I sat there with like twiddling my thumbs going, what church is this? Did I go into Joel Olstein's building? Because this doesn't sound like the Mormon church. We're talking about non-transactional prayers. Because I thought everything kind of had, a, I'll give you this if you give me that type of deal going on. I'll pay my tithing. I'll get blessings. That's kind of how I grew up. And what is this? Now we're talking mother in heaven. I'm sorry. I thought that was a no-no. Let me give you an example of that. All right. I wish I knew more. You too may still have questions and want to find more answers. Seeking greater understanding is an important part of our spiritual development, but please be cautious. Reason cannot replace revelation. Speculation won't lead to greater spiritual knowledge, but it can lead us to deception or divert us Ooh. and divert our focus from what has been revealed. For example, the Savior taught his disciples. Always pray unto the Father in my name. We follow this pattern and direct our worship to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ and do not pray to Heavenly Mother. Okay, let me stop that right, right there uh, and I'll come back. So the guest that I had uh, uh, on my last podcast, um, her entire talk at the Restore Conference was Mother in Heaven. And she very brazenly and very profoundly said, we need more Mother in Heaven. We need more cowbell. Okay, that's what she was saying. And she is very, very, um, she is very active in getting more artwork out there that depicts Mother in Heaven. Well, that's lovely. But what I was confused about was um, and I actually went up and asked her about this. I said, now, how do you how do you correlate your your talk that you just gave about Mother in Heaven with Dale Renlund's talk uh, last year? And she said, oh, it was it was beautiful. Uh, no, um, I loved it. It was great because, you know, she um, her husband is from India and she had spent quite a bit of time in India. And she said, you know, many of the uh, of our sisters in India did not know that we um believe in a mother in heaven. And so by Dale Renlund mentioning her name, they now know that we believe in a mother in heaven. So wasn't that amazing? I'm like, did you listen to the same talk that I listened to? Because I believe he was saying we shouldn't be talking about that. And according to her, they watched this particular conference session with Dale Renlund, and there were 17 women in the room and there were only three of them that were upset. The other women, the other 14 women were like, this is so great. Look, somebody mentioned mother in heaven. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I believe that, you know, and maybe I would like, I would be concerned for the other 14 women that did not actually hear what he said. All right. So this is the, this is the thing everyone knows. And it has been referenced so many times there is a talk given to the church. There is a talk given in private. There is a talk given to a private group that they don't think the word's going to get out or that anyone's going to leak the message. And then it gets leaked and then they have to walk it back. But there's like two or three different churches going on here and you all have to decide which one you're going to belong to. So let's go on. This is this just. Oh Ever gosh. since God appointed prophets, they've been authorized to speak on his behalf. Okay. But they don't pronounce doctrines fabricated of their own mind. Mm, I don't know about that. What hasn't been revealed. Consider the words of the Old Testament prophet Balaam, who was offered a bribe to curse the Israelites to benefit Moab. Balaam said, If the king of Moab would give me his house full of silver and gold, I'll more. Latter-day prophets are similarly constrained. Demanding revelation from God is both arrogant and unproductive. Instead, we wait on the Lord and His timetable to reveal His truths through the means that He has established. Okay. Okay. 
I guess we got another 140 something years to go, ladies. That's all I have to say. And I love, thank you. Kat, Kat just said, um, it's where to go. She just said, I, it's so sad to see how happy the women get for the little breadcrumbs that are sprinkled, you know? And I remember reading, I was reading one of Margaret Toscano's, um, messages and she was just saying how just because someone mentions mother in heaven does not mean that they're actually talking about her and this is another thing that got me at the restore conference was they kept saying um doctrine we have revealed doctrine and they were talking about the gospel topics essays and i'm like okay renland do you know how these gospel topic essays came about like the committees that were formed to get these gospel topics essays out. The reason why they didn't put by so-and-so underneath the gospel topics essays is because they were formulated by a committee. So when you're talking about people, how dare you ask the Lord for a revelation when, I mean, that's just not how it works. It's like, yeah, you're right. That's not how it works. It's done by committee. And so, and that this is the beautiful thing that Matt does is Dr. Harris goes through and he's actually acknowledged the people that have written these gospel topic essays. So for them to call, they when they say that it has been revealed, that there has been doctrine that has been revealed, they're talking about the gospel topics essays. Now, somebody tell me if there is a doctrine and covenants out there, section whatever, that talks about a mother in heaven. I know we have a song. Everybody talks about the song. We all know about the song. Is there an actual doctrine and covenant section that talks about a mother in heaven? I don't know. Was too lazy to actually look at it. Somebody out there that has this stuff in their brain, tell me if it's out there somewhere. But where is this revealed that how dare we ask the Lord whether we should be talking about a mother in heaven? And here's another thing that I have a hard time with apologists. In secret, you will pray to mother in heaven, but you know very well that you will not pray in a sacrament meeting or in a conference. And if you're not doing it in public, then it's not authorized. So that is an apology that I will not accept. So anyway, Kat, I'm loving your comments. She says, it's very interesting that just about every doctrine has changed or been updated, except men are in charge and can have a harem for eternity. Isn't that amazing? Yes. And we're going to talk about uh, Dr. Harris and I are going to talk about that next. And actually, Deves and I have a podcast planned and we are going to be talking about the doctrine that has been changed. And according to Greg Prince, every single doctrine has been changed. So anyway, that's my uh, rant for the evening. I just wanted to share with you how these things that are happening they affect people differently depending on the context of their life, depending on their life experiences. And I listened to a very obnoxious podcast the other day. I will not even give you the name because I wouldn't want you to go to it. But he, this particular podcast host was interviewing um, Kate Kelly, who is a strong, intelligent feminist woman. And he actually had enough guts to say, um, you know, do you don't you think that like the feminism is like done like we've already reached where we need to go that we don't need to talk about it anymore and i was like oh my gosh you did not just say that but that's exactly what we're talking about here that we can have men that are supposed to be prophets seers and revelators that we can have these men say things over the pulpit absolutely nothing is done the the apostles do not apologize. Maybe the underlings apologize, but the apostles, according to Oaks, they do not apologize. But the women are shutted up, quieted, and kicked off the stand. Go home and conceive. And let me see if I can, as I'm ending my rant here, let me show you um, one of my favorite. Okay, this is uh, this is one of my favorites. Currently speaking as a man, click, no, a prophet. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. Okay. And then, of course, we have the reference to Jesus. Uh, Jesus had women. Read Luke 8. Talks all about the women that Jesus had and, um, and how he, and this is one of the things that was mentioned in the Salt Lake uh, article, was 
what would Jesus would welcome women. He had women disciples that followed him. He had women that were supporting him just like we're, I mean, financially and in all areas for him to be able to do his ministry. If it wasn't for the women, he would not have been able to do what he did, which is true in today's church as well. And let me just make sure I've covered all my slides. Bart Ehrman, got to talk to him. It's a fabulous article about, um, you know, how we, how we, um, yeah, we're not going to get into that. We already touched it a little bit. Uh, what is an apostle? Jesus never organized a church. Who did Jesus choose as followers? The inclusion of women. Jesus was Jewish. He celebrated the Jewish rituals. And it takes a lot of truth to gain trust, but just one lie to lose it all. And that's where I'm at. When I found the dishonesty, the deceitful, and this whole idea of secrets, no, I was out. I was gone. So thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, I loved reading all of your comments. Uh, what does Kat say? Mormon News Roundup. I literally laughed out loud in a room full of TBMs when Nelson said his wife was homemaking. Oh, the donuts. That was bad. That was bad, you guys. Who would Jesus kick off the stand? Seriously, D-Base, who would Jesus kick off the stand? Don't let Steve drive. You guys are hilarious. This is so funny. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and for commenting. It was so great. So join me next Sunday when I will have Dr. Matt Harris on my podcast. We're going to be broadcasting at 4 p.m. next Sunday. Um, I have, I have, I have, hey, Rebecca, how are you doing? Um, I have decided that in order for me to have a successful guest appear on my podcast, I have to follow their timeline because I've, it's been really difficult getting people to uh, coordinate with my timeline. So I ask my guests, when would a good time for you? And they tell me. So Matt said 4 p.m. on Sunday. So that's what we're going to do. So join me next week as we talk about his fabulous book um, on President Benson. And I have to tell you another little thing before we go here real quick. I've already done an hour, but let me just tell you a funny story. My husband's mission president was Mark Benson, which is one of Ezra Taft Benson's sons, not the Bircher one. It was the other one. He loved uh, Mark Benson. He was a great mission president. Um, he was a very kind and wonderful man. And when we got married in the Salt Lake Temple, my husband invited Mark and his wife, Lila, to, to, to be with us. And they were with us um, in the temple when we got married. And because when I was serving in the military in Japan, President Hinckley was very instrumental in um, uh, announcing the Tokyo Temple. And RFM, I know you talked a lot about where you were at um, with the uh, when you were on your mission in Japan and when the temple was built. We were there uh, in 1973 when the uh, Tokyo Temple was announced. And anyway, there were quite a few times when Hinckley came over and he talked to us as military people. And so I really had a love in my heart for, for President Hinckley. And he was also a prophet um, in my, you know, when I was raising my children. And yes, there you go. So it was in 73 when they announced it. And um, so, and my husband had uh, also had a lot of opportunities to hear President Hinckley. So back in 1974, you could still write these guys letters. And I wrote President Hinckley and I said, would you marry us in the temple? And I think because of the Benson connection, which I found out from Matt, actually Hinckley and Benson did not get along. Um, but because of the connection, Hinckley said, sure, if I'm in town, I'll do it. So Hinckley married us and President Benson was there. So we went to a, um, also went to a sacrament meeting where Mark Benson was going to be speaking and Ezra Teth Benson and his wife, Flora, they were there and Mark introduced us to them. And I have to tell you this funny story. So Flora, she must've had a great sense of humor. She said to me, you know, it wasn't the apple in the tree that got him in trouble in the garden of Eden. Do you know what it was? And I said, no. And she said, it was the pear on the ground. This was outside the chapel. Now, if you don't get that innuendo, then think about it for a little bit. But I loved it. I loved it. It was great. So anyway, it's just it's it's interesting not growing up in the bubble, not having the connection, but then eventually growing up and realizing, oh, wait, I knew this guy and I knew that guy, but I didn't know that was going on in the background. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me today and join me again next week as we talk with Dr. Harris on She Became Visible. And also, may I also include here, if you don't mind, please don't turn me off yet. Um, I really want to encourage you to donate 
to Mormon Discussions Incorporated. Shebecamevisible.org. You can go on there and you can donate. And let me tell you why. I don't know how many podcasts you guys listen to, but the podcasts that have transferred over to advertisements, mm, the only one I can handle is Data Over Dogma. I don't mind their advertisements. And the reason why is because they lay them out and they give you a little preview that they're going to go um, to a commercial. So your your mind is prepared. But I, I tried to listen to Rob Reiner's new podcast about the JFK assassination. And I couldn't even get through it because they would be in the middle of a sentence and they would interrupt it with the commercial. And I was like, what, what's happening? What are we talking about now? It was so confusing. And I found that on a lot of other podcasts that have gone to commercially funded podcasts rather than the donation podcasts. And the fact that you could listen to Mormonism live for three hours and my podcast for an hour and a half and RFM for an hour and a half and two minutes and Ramiumpton ruminations and, and, you know, um, all of the other podcasts that the, the fact that you could plug yourself in and listen to uninterrupted knowledge is worth a small donation. So I really encourage you to go to shebecamevisible.org and make a donation that helps Bill Real and the Mormon Discussions Corporation make these podcasts even better. So if I could just ask you to do that. And what's amazing is how little it takes. It's not, you know, I, my husband and I uh, ran a foundation and people do not understand that $5, $25, $10 makes such a difference. So I really encourage you to make a donation. So once again, thank you for joining me today. And we will go, let me move my little thing over here so I can get out and say goodnight. So goodnight. Goodbye. Thank you for joining me today on She Became Visible. Join me each week as my guests and I explore the path of womanhood and tell all our stories. We'll talk about finding the courage to be ourselves and motivate each other to be everything that we're capable of and meant to be, no matter what happens around us. Please like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to donate at SheBecameVisible.org.